Good morning. Today's reading is from Mark chapter 3, verses 1 to 19. Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, Which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked round at them in anger and, deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the men, to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and across Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they, called, and they came to him. He appointed twelve that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave the name Boogenes, which means sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Um, this morning we will continue our series in the book of Mark. And uh, my name is Mark, if you, for those of you who don't know me, I didn't write the book, uh, but it's my delight to be able to bring uh, a message to you from, from Mark. And so we continue our series in Mark, and today's message is the King's Kingdom. Now, at St. Mary's Church in Islington back on the 17th of June this year, I was priested, that is, I was first licensed by the Bishop of London to preach in this uh, diocese. 284 years earlier in that same church, St. Mary's Islington, on the 27th of April, 1739, a certain George Whitfield was approached by the church wardens demanding to see his license for preaching in the Diocese of London. Whitfield, who had already achieved a certain amount of fame from his preaching in Bristol, of course, did not have a license. But thus began 
one of the most important movements in British history. Because George Whitfield stepped out of the church into the churchyard, he mounted up on top of a, a flat topped grave, which is still there to this day. And there he preached to the crowds in the open air. The rest, they say, is history. Because it is reckoned that open air preaching, the open air preaching of George Whitfield and his protege, Charles Wesley, and the subsequent revival that spread across this country saved the country from the revolutionary forces that were taking over in France at that time. And also their preaching was a catalyst for the great awakening in America in the 18th century. Now, the fact that both George Whitfield and I were once in the same church, not together, that's pretty much the total extent of the similarities between us. Uh, and the fact that I do have a license to preach in London uh, and he didn't should probably be more a cause of concern than comfort. <laughs> anyway, to our passage today, I will come back and talk a little bit about George Whitfield. You see, today, on one level, our passage today looks like just three vignettes that we've sort of seen before. Jesus heals a man. There are people being delivered from demons and also he calls the disciples. In fact, at this pulpit just a few weeks ago, I preached a sermon that talked about Jesus having authority over sickness, over spirits, and over our lives. But to preach that sermon again would be to miss a huge underlying tectonic shift that takes place in this passage. And what we're going to see is that the story is so much bigger than you ever could have thought, and you are more vital to this story than you ever could have hoped. So the story is so much bigger. So it's worth reviewing the story so far. Back in chapter one, we have seen Jesus achieve a certain amount of fame. In chapter two, on the other hand, he starts to suffer a barrage of rejections, objections, and complaints from the religious authorities. Mark 2 verse 6. He's blaspheming. Who can give, forgive sins but God alone? Mark 2 verse 16. Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Mark 2 verse 18. How is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? In the middle of these complaints, he, he says this. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, and no one pours new wine into old wineskins. I've worn my patched up jeans just to show you. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, and no one pours new wine into old wineskins. What is he signaling by this? Mark goes on. The final complaint of chapter 2 is this. The Pharisees said to him, look what your disciples are doing. It is unlawful to do that on the Sabbath. 
And so we come to chapter 3. And chapter 3 begins with the word again. It's almost like Mark is saying, and again, in exasperation. Because he says, again. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. You see, this Sabbath and the keeping of the Sabbath has become a sort of cause celebre for these religious authorities. For them, it is serious stuff, and it was. Last week, Sam underscored uh, just how germane the Sabbath was to the Jewish identity and to the Pharisees' program. Jesus is angry. He looked around and looked at them in anger. This is gentle Jesus, meek and mild. He looks at them in anger because he knows the Sabbath was about restoration and rest and they're being tribal and critical and their hearts are hardened. It also says though that he is deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. Back in the day, I used to live in New York and I lived up on 67, uh, 69th Street on the east side and just a couple of blocks down from us on 67th Street was one of the Orthodox synagogues in New York. And sometimes when I was returning home from the office on a Friday evening or maybe I was out on a Saturday morning, it happened a couple of times that somebody would come up to me as I walked down 67th Street and go, Now. We lived on the Upper East Side, but honestly, if I had lived in uh, Brooklyn or in, uh, or in the Bronx or in Queens, at that point I would have scarpered. And so I w came over to this man. Are you Jewish? He would say. And I would say, no, I'm not Jewish. He said, okay, could you help me please? And he would take me into the underground bit of the synagogue and there he would point to the light switches because he didn't want to touch them. And he would point to the light switches and say, would you turn the light switches on for me? Something had obviously failed on those occasions with the automatic clock that switched the lights on. And so he needed a Gentile to come and help him. And you know, I used to, I was delighted to do this because I'd never been inside a synagogue before. But, uh, but nevertheless, I did feel sympathy for them. Jesus is deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. But he is also at the height of his problems with both the religious authorities and the civil authorities. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. The Pharisees were the religious authorities. The Herodians were those who collaborated with Rome. They were the civil authorities. They normally didn't speak to each other. Why are they speaking to each other now? Is it a case of my enemy's enemy is my friend? Well, I think it's more than that. You see, Jesus and the message of the gospel are offensive to moral legalists. The Pharisees were the conservatives, the moral legalists of the day. 
the gospel is offensive to those who believe that God rewards our good behavior. That's the traditional religious position. That's the position that every other religion takes, that God rewards good behavior or practices. The gospel, however, says, God has paid the price for our sins, even the sins of the filthy tax collectors and sinners. It's offensive to those who are the moral legalists. But on the other hand, the gospel is also offensive to others, the liberal pluralists. Liberal pluralists will say, I'll choose my own way. I'm my own God. I'm my own boss. The gospel is offensive to them. And that would be most of us who live in a postmodern society. Nobody tells me I'm a sinner in need of God's grace. You see, Jesus is not a new religion. He is something completely new. He is not an addition to Judaism. He is something completely different. There's no patching him onto my old liberal pluralism. He can't just become another god in the pantheon of the Roman gods. Nor is there any pouring him into the old wineskin of Judaism. His is not just a new set of rules, regulations, to add to all of the other writings of Judaism. His message is simply, the king has come. In verse 7 it says, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake. Now, I've been to Capernaum where we believe this story took place and I can tell you that the synagogue, and I checked it out on Google Earth last week, the synagogue is approximately 100 meters from the lakeshore. If I was saying I was gonna take a stroll of 100 meters, I would not say I withdrew. If I was saying I withdrew to the desert of Sinai, that would make sense. But to withdraw, down the road, pop down, stroll down the, to the lake shore. That doesn't make any sense unless Mark means to convey a word that is symbolic and rich with meaning. Jesus withdraws. Also, what does Jesus do? What does any man do if he's had a bad day at the office? And by any measure, this is a bad day at the office for Jesus. They plot how they might kill him. Well, what, does, what do we normally do? Well, I would conjecture that we either dream about joining a golf club or we buy a boat. And Jesus bought a boat. He gets a boat because Jesus has previously gone out to the lake shore or gone into the wilderness into those lonely places to escape the crowds. But now he embraces the crowds and he buys himself a boat so he might push out a little way from the shore in order to be able to preach to the crowds on the shore. And this is what Whitfield did. Whitfield went out and he had made for himself a portable pulpit and he would take it around London and preach to the many crowds in the open spaces. 
He goes out to the ordinary people. But I don't want you to think, oh, this is just like now an open air assembly. It's like some religious Woodstock or some religious Glastonbury. This is the forming of a new kingdom. Jesus announces by each of these actions that the king has come. There is a new kingdom. We, some of us, get together on Wednesday afternoons uh, just for a bit of fun during the day. And uh, this term we're watching excerpts from the, uh, from the series of movies, The Chosen, which is about the life of Jesus and the disciples. Uh, and it's great. You should look it up. Um, but it, sometimes the mood music changes. And in the middle of an episode about first century, it will flash back to the Old Testament. And uh, if you're a Jew reading this passage about Jesus withdrawing to the wilderness, you will be reminded immediately of King David. King David, who was the true and anointed king, fleeing Saul, whose kingship had come to an end. He withdraws to Mizpah, to the wilderness of Ziph, to Ziklag, and there all those who are in distress, in debt, or discontented would gather round him, it says. You see, Jesus is also at the height of his popularity. Verse 8, when they heard all that he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. They came, Mark says, from north, from the south, the very south, from the east and the west. But also, if you're a Jewish person reading this, you will know that these were all of the territories that were under the rule of King David. No longer under his rule, but they were in those days. And you're reminded again that Jesus is the new David. Verse 13, he climbs a mountain. And again, the mood music takes us back to that other mountaineer, Moses. He appoints a team of 12 apostles. And immediately, you're thinking of the 12 tribes of Israel. He equips them to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. Isn't that his job? And he names them. Now, we northerners love our nicknames. You'll remember Gaza, the Newcastle and England uh, striker. Gaza very famously had a good friend called Jimmy Five Bellies. Do you remember that? When I was young, uh, as a teenager, I hung out with Jeff and Keith. Uh, Jeff was known as Bandy. Keith was known as Drippy. And I, for reasons best forgotten, was known as weird. <laughs> but you Southerners, you like your nicknames as well. And I love the Guy Ritchie movies, his hapless gang of Cockney mates, Handsome Bob, Nick the Bubble, Hatchet Harry, Barry the Baptist. And so Jesus renames these men. Simon becomes Peter, or Rocky. James and John become the sons of thunder. Simon becomes the zealot. 
and again, the mood music, because names in those days were not just a handle, but they signified something. They were often prophetic. They were what you hoped somebody would be, what they would become. And we're thrown back again to the mountain, to Moses up on the mountain as he sends the tribes into the promised land, knowing that he cannot go there. And so he names them. He names the tribe. He nominates them. He nominates the territory that they will take. Jesus has just been reminded that he will die. And he starts to nominate the team that will go forward after his death. Okay, steady on, you might say. Mark, you're reading too much into this. So let me just offer this by way of my defense. Revelation 21, verse 14. The wall of the city, that is the new Jerusalem to come. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. You see, Jesus here is laying the foundation of the church, the apostles, that will be his new kingdom. Not a civil kingdom, but a spiritual kingdom. And what about you? Peter, later when he writes to the church, Peter Rocky, we'll now call him, he addresses the ordinary members of the church. And he says, but you are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation, God's special possession. And further he says that you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Revelation has a word for all, us all as well, not just the apostles. Revelation 2.17 says this. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious. To the one who is victorious. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. That's you. That's your stone with your name. Did you know that you and Almighty God are going to share a secret? A secret that no one else will ever know. A name that only you and Almighty God know. You are more vital to this story than you can ever hope. So, we need to metaphorically get out of the synagogue, get out of the old strictures of religion, get out of the new strictures of liberal modernism, and we need to get a new name. Because I believe, just like in Whitfield's day, God wants to once again turn this country upside down by the gospel.
And he won't do it through the old wineskins of religion or the worn out genes of liberal pluralism. He needs a new kingdom and he needs a new people. I find this to be a worthy saying, helpful for those of us who will not serve in the church, who will not have some role in the synagogue, so to speak. This is a worthy saying. The work of the gospel is not conducted in the nave of the church, but in the dealing room, at the school gate, at the water cooler, and at the gym. What name will God give you amongst the ordinary people? What job has he for you? Let's pray.